Hello and welcome. Thank you everyone for joining me this week. I have a special guest co-host. Corey Morris is joining me. You might remember him from an earlier episode. Corey, of course, is a great friend of ours, and he always challenges our thinking a little bit from time to time. And he actually went out and learned a whole bunch of information about something that I feel like I need to brush up on. So we wanted to bring him back to share some of what he's learned from a recent reading adventure he took himself on. So Corey, thanks for joining us. Thanks for giving us your time. Just as a reminder, you're an ag professional in Nebraska. And you know, tell us a little about yourself. Yes, Ag Professional Nebraska. I went to University of Missouri, Ag Economist by training. And uh, actually, what really led to this conversation was I was listening to the 1980 podcast, the Escaping 1980. That was before I was born and was so impactful. Everybody talks about it. And so it was something that I was listening to and, and brought up a lot of questions. One of those was just, hey, I want to learn more about Volcker. I asked you for some recommendations to read and, and you recommended Volcker, The Triumph of Persistence. This is a fascinating book, what he did and just going through the 80s and all the inflation. And I think it's worth pointing out that book is fairly new, correct? Yeah. So, I mean, it talks about uh, 2012. It talks about uh, President Obama and pretty recent. As a little bit of a background, Paul Volcker was the infamous, I think, Federal Reserve chairperson. He came in in the late 1970s and raised interest rates. And he was at the helm doing a very unpopular job, but it was to fight off inflation. He actually passed away in 2019, at the end of 2019. So I think what's interesting about that particular book, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's on my list to read, but I think what's really interesting is he was at the helm of a very interesting time in history, and he was still around to write and comment about some very more current events. I believe, I just looked this up, he was followed, succeeded by Alan Greenspan. Mm -hmm. So he was the chair of the Federal Reserve from 1979 till 1987. And so Alan Greenspan came into office in 87 and he stuck around in the mid 2000s. And then it was Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, and now Jay Powell. And so if you think about how many Federal Reserve chairs we've had since the late 1970s, early 1980s, there's only been a handful of them. Paul Volcker probably had the most unpleasant job out of any out of all of them that we can remember in recent history. Yeah, it's cool. It's got a ton of documents that from his personal records, personal files, cards that were sent to him. And, and your, to your point about infamous and famous, there were a lot of people that were pretty upset with him about what he was doing with the high interest rates. But there's a story in there where he went fishing out in Montana and he had a rancher come up and have him sign an autograph, his $10 bill. And he said, because you're the only reason this $10 bill is worth anything. Inflation was so bad. So it was both sides businesses that were going under because their boats were worth 10% of what they paid for them, right? So there's a boat dealer that he bought all of his inventory. He had to sell it for 10 cents on the dollar and it totally bankrupted him and others who were sending him tons of thank yous for bringing it under control, especially for people on fixed incomes. The idea here is high, when he raised interest rates to fight double digit inflation, it had a huge impact on the economy. It sent us into the double, you know, the twin recessions in the early 80s and capital asset values tumbled when we had higher rates. You know, I don't want to spend too much time on that, but tell us some of the key takeaways you had from from that. You know, you shared a few of them already. What are some of the other takeaways that you you have? Well, so it's interesting because just like, I, I don't know if you followed the, the short recently, I like the, the GameStop short and stuff. Yeah. Wall Street bets. Basically, hey, we've got more sold than there is. The whole book starts off with the Fed trying to save Bretton Woods, the gold standard. And the reason it was under danger was because the US printed more dollars than we could actually redeem. We had too many IOUs to the gold we had. 
And so speculators, these evil speculators were, were saying, hey, there's too many dollars out there and they were trying to make profit on it. And all the governments wanted to keep it because that with that fixed price, you could go anywhere in the world. You knew exactly what everything cost. So is a tremendous, as I read that book, there's a tremendous amount of time and energy and money spent in preserving it. Whereas if they just kept gold or kept to the agreement, it wouldn't any of that been necessary if we only printed what we sold relative to the gold. And the other thing that struck me is they talk a lot about balance of payments, which is just a big country thing, right? For we, we were started buying more than we were selling. So we were continually exporting dollars and importing material goods, which is what's happening now. But that's what caused a lot of the crisis. They were, we weren't making anything any, as much anymore. And it's only kind of gone down. So that was another really thing that struck me out. And then the, the Fed wasn't, wasn't as independent. The big reason Volcker's name still rings so loud is because he did, said what he believed and he did it. And actually, he didn't work in, in, in multiple governments. Even as a Democrat, President Obama wouldn't hire him. President Clinton wouldn't hire him into the Treasury because he would speak his mind and wouldn't follow the party line. So it's just kind of interesting him compared to previous and, and after Fed chairs where he did what needed to happen and not necessarily what the president's Congress wanted. Yeah. So I think what's great is that there's this line that is very valuable. I think Mark Twain, it's associated to Mark Twain. You never know where these old quotes uh, really started, but it was history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And so some of the things that we hear talking about concerns today, balance of trade, for example, when you think about the trade war with China, was an issue in the 70s and in the late 60s. And there were some changes that had to be made. And we could spend a whole hour talking about Bretton Woods, and I'm not even smart enough to really explain it all myself. So I, I wouldn't want to get into that topic. But the idea of exchange rates among countries were linked to the gold that these countries had in the 70s. We walked away from that. And so what was great about this, Corey, is you had sent this kind of summary to us about this book. And it caught my attention because I had just reread Business Adventure by John Brooks. And in there, there's a chapter. That book is really interesting because you read it the first time. You're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then you go through life, you're like, oh, I need to go read this chapter, reread it because something came up. So Piggly Wiggly was the one that I had to reread in 2020. 2021 has been kind of the, the act one of arguably Paul Volcker's problem. And it was British pound was facing a big devalue. They, they were going to have to devalue the British pound in the, in the late 60s. And so all of these central banks around the world were trying to prop up or trying to support the pound because there was this story about the evil gnomes that were out there trying to short and they're trying to speculate the pound to push it lower and the countries that was costly for these countries to defend the currency. And so there was a very huge sentiment that we need to protect the dollar and the pound because if the pound got weakened, then we might have to devalue the dollar to keep everything in balance. And so there's a huge effort to protect that. And I think one of the takeaways from that is an expensive dollar is viewed as a strong dollar. And that's traditionally seen as strong. It's a, it's a positive attribute of the country. Then a cheap dollar or a cheap exchange is seen as weak. And that's a bad thing. But if you want to export things, right, it's better to have a cheaper exchange rate or a weaker exchange rate to get more exports out the door. So tell us a little about the butter wars. We talked about this as we were preparing. So I think this is an interesting story that folks can go learn more about. Yeah, so the butter wars, and I want to come back to that strong weak thing, but the butter wars were simply Denmark and New Zealand. I'm pretty sure it was Denmark and New Zealand. They were both selling butter to England. They both wanted to increase exports. And so they depreciated their currency so they would get cheaper. After this whole battle goes out, they both have the exact same amount of exports to England. They're both making less money now as part of it. 
nothing really changed. And so everybody wanted to avoid that. I think it's interesting because we tr- we've transitioned from strong and weak to be you know expensive and cheap, whereas back then it was reliable. There's quotes of, well, JFK said, a nation was only as strong as the value of its currency. And again, strong does not mean expensive. It means reliable. Perhaps that is why JFK half-humorously listed military power behind a strong currency as a determinant of international prestige. Britain has nuclear weapons, but the pound is weak. So everyone pushes Britain around. <laughs> and there's another quote in there where they, don't, they won't work with the country in Southeast Asia because their currency is not reliable. It fluctuates too much. So we've kind of transitioned over the last 40 years from having a stable currency to now it's who's got the most expensive or cheapest currency. Mm-hmm. It, it's just interesting to me. That's great. So Triumph of Persistence is the name of the book that you read. And I think, you know, the macro economy is something that we all can maybe spend some time this winter brushing up on because it is in the center of a lot of our conversations. And so people are talking about inflation, higher interest rates. It's a good time to brush up on your your history lessons a little bit and realize, you know, there could be some key lessons. So Corey, anything else that stands out from the book as we wrap this up? Yeah, there's one last thing that was interesting. We give Paul credit, Volcker credit for raising interest rates and just slaying inflation, right? What was interesting and became a problem is that he started lowering interest rates, but the the Fed's rate, right? We talk now, we all talk about the prime rate versus the market rate, but that interest rate came down, the Fed's prime rate came down and the market interest rate stayed up or increased. The book doesn't say there was a lot of disagreement about it, but Paul Volcker believed it was because he was refusing to monetize the debt. He would not buy the federal government deficits. And so the federal government was having to get their money from the private market. And that if they were not running deficits, the interest rates would have come down. I say there are people at Treasury and such at the time that disagreed. But I think it's interesting where we're continuing to issue debt and, and have higher deficits and our interest rates aren't going up and the Fed is basically monetizing them. So it just that I, that juxtaposition of, hey, he was lowering interest rates, but they stayed up. Right. And so when you start thinking about the branches of the government, there's legislation, there's the executive branch. There's also judicial, but judicial doesn't usually come into this one. But now we have the Fed, which is not a branch of the government, but it it's out there and it has not as much independence. It's not completely independent. It's not a silo, right? They generally want to get reappointed. They generally want the economy to, to do well. But we've talked about in 2000, since 2009, around that crisis, the Fed was trying to stimulate the economy and Congress is maybe cutting back on spending, which was is not seen as a stimulant to the economy. And now here recently, everyone's been going full steam ahead. And so it's just interesting to note that not all the times in history is everyone working on the same page, is everyone using the same set of tools to move forward. And so sometimes they can have disagreements about how things play out. And so those can be important to watch as they play out. So yeah, everyone's kind of getting along today, but how does that play out in the future? That might not always be the case. So I think you had one quote that you shared earlier that I thought was really fun. Paul Volcker really hated, uh, he, he didn't like inflation. So when he was in Harvard, he says, well, so he's, he's working with, working through some stuff. He says, it all sounded too easy. Push this button twice and out pops full employment. Equations do not work as well on people as they do on rockets, which you guys talk about in Ag Insights that just the importance of the model is not reality. Okay, so back, he says, I remember sitting in class at Harvard, listening to the fiscal policy expert, Arthur Smithy say, quote, a little inflation is good for the economy, end quote. 
And all I can remember after that was a word flashing in my brain, like a yellow caution sign, baloney. I'm not going to, I want to keep this not explicit. I'm not sure exactly where that came from, but it's a thought that's never left me. Baloney. A little inflation is good for the economy. Right. And so I think that's another really two points there that stand out to me is how much inflation is enough or good, good. And how, when does it become bad? You know, I think the Fed would think 1.6% that we saw the last decade is potentially not enough. Is 3% too much? Is 4%? You know, we all know 10% is too much. It's a question of what's the Goldilocks paradox, right? Where is, where do we find that happy medium? And then of course, Ben Bernanke has a great quote about how weather forecasts are just particles of water that bounce into each other. And that's one thing to forecast, or uh, I think Volcker used the example of a rocket, you know, (laughs) physics equations are a little easier, but in economics, the forecast impacts human behavior, which then impacts the outcome. And so if we start forecasting inflation, it has a way of changing behavior, which sometimes make those outcomes more or less likely. And if people are expecting inflation, they might make them more likely to happen. Well, Corey, this has been great to catch base with you. Anything else before we wrap up? Any observations you've been making as you travel across Nebraska? Harvest is coming in looking good. Beans are doing really, really well. They're not drying down. They're drying down, but they're not browning. They're green. It's it's causing guys issues. It's, a, it's an interesting harvest, but it's moving along very quickly. Wheat planting getting started? Yep. Got guys out west planting wheat too. So we recently wrote a few questions about a new forecast network question about winter wheat acres in 2022 and have a few articles on there this week for folks to take a look at. Tis the season for winter wheat. I always say winter wheat bats first in the acreage debate and mother nature bats last. Not a lot of attention right now to the acreage debate right now. I think there will be a lot of debate later, but for now it's, it's actually getting started. So everyone keep an eye on that. In the meantime, Corey, thanks so much for joining us. We'll have to get you on here again sometime soon. To all of our listeners, uh, join us again next week. In the meantime, stay curious.